Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 126, when we go back, back to, to the, the past. past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and get off this channel! It's reserved for official Skyboy use only! Maggot! I added that part. <laughs> uh, yeah, but today, instead of going back to the past, Chris, we're going to go back to the past to the future Uh-oh. and read Spider-Man 2099, number one. This had a November 1992 cover date, written by uh, Peter David, penciled by Rick Leonardi, inked by Al Williamson, colored by Steve Bucciolato, lettered by Rick Parker, cover by uh, Leonardi and Williamson, edited by Joey Cavalieri and Sarah Mussoff. Editor-in-chief at the time was Tom DeFalco, published, of course, by Marvel Comics. And the cover price was $1.75 USD, $2.15 Canadian. Mm-hmm. Do you think they were annoyed in Canada that like it came out to an odd, a yeah, weird a... number? Like you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. If, I don't know if there is a fifteen cent coin. I don't think there is. Maybe that would make it easy. Mm. So the thing, the thing so, about this uh, this issue here, it's like we always argued about how to what to call it. Like was it Spider Man twenty ninety nine or was right. it Spider Man two thousand ninety nine? Oh, interesting. So like there was a there was like rumblings in the store where nobody knew exactly how to say it. So uh, well, it, I'm gonna go with twenty ninety nine. I think that's that, what I always that said too, rolls so off we're... the tongue a little better. <laughs> for, for me, it was always is the character Spider Man twenty ninety nine or is it Spider Man? Or is it just Spider Man? Yeah, twenty ninety nine. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we have an elegant way to deal with it later on when we get to the comic. But first, of course, <laughs> the biographical information about. Uh, the people involved, that would be Peter Allen David. He was born September 23rd, 1956 in Fort Meade, Maryland. He has two younger siblings, a brother and a sister. Spent his young life in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and the family moved to Verona, New Jersey when he became an adolescent. Uh, David first became interested in comics when he was about five years old, reading copies of Harvey Comics' Casper and Wendy in the barbershop. And he was interested in superheroes through the Adventures of Superman TV series. But all wasn't well because his parents didn't approve of superhero comics, particularly those from Marvel, because the heroes look like monsters. And we're talking about the Thing and Hulk, of course. Yeah. Uh, now Peter would read these comics in secret, uh, beginning with his first Marvel book, Fantastic Four Annual Number Three. That's November 1965 cover date. A very convenient issue because it was the wedding of Reed Richards and Sue Storm. Eventually, though, his parents would relent, and uh, Peter would go on to become a very big Superman fan. Uh, he attended his first comic book convention around the time that Jack Kirby's New Gods premiered as- after asking his father to take him to one of Phil Suling's shows in New York where David would obtain Kirby's autograph. Now, New Gods number one came out with a February-March 1971 cover date, so we're assuming that this was a late, very late 1970 or very early 1971. Yeah, it would have to be, although I, I couldn't yeah. find a corresponding con, but that doesn't con mean anything. Con, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, David began to entertain the notion of becoming a professional writer at the age of 12. He bought himself a copy of the Guide to the Writer's Market in hopes of becoming a reporter. He'd attend NYU, New York University, and he would graduate with a Bachelor of Arts degree in journalism. His first professional assignment was covering the World Science Fiction Convention that was held in Washington in 1974. That was for the Philadelphia Bulletin. 
His first published fiction work was in Asimov's science fiction. He also sold an op-ed piece to the New York Times, but received far more rejections than acceptances, yeah. which is, uh, you know, par for the course. That's how it goes, folks. Sorry. That's yep. the game. you got to have a thick skin <laughs> yep. that, uh, that I don't have, so yeah. I, I would never be able to do it. Uh, now, David worked in book publishing, and his first job was for the E.P. Dutton imprint Elsevier Nelson, and that's where he worked mainly as an assistant to the editor-in-chief. Uh, he later worked in sales and distribution for Playboy paperbacks. Now, Peter lost interest in comics as a teenager, as a lot of uh, teenagers do, but it was rekindled when he saw a copy of Superman vs. Muhammad Ali. That was from 1978. Uh, he saw that while passing a newsstand, and later he would see X-Men number 95, October 1975, cover date. That was uh, the first issue back uh, where they weren't reprints anymore. Uh, and he discovered that in the latter book, the all-new, all-different team uh, that had first appeared in Giant Size X-Men number 1, May 1975, cover date. And he says that those were the first First two comics that he purchased in quite a while. But obviously that uh, sparked something in him because he went to go work at Marvel's sales department under Carol Kalish and eventually succeeded Carol as sales manager. While there, he unsuccessfully tried submitting stories for Moon Knight to editor Denny O'Neill. Uh, we think that possibly in this case, Denny didn't want to kind of cross the streams between creative and the office. Um, you know, sides of things, less of an indictment on Peter David's writing, but obviously we don't know why Denny O'Neill We don't know, it. yeah. But, you know, whatever it was, he didn't get picked up. Uh, three years into his tenure as direct sales manager, Jim, Jim Owsley became editor of the Spider-Man titles. Now, Owsley, who we know today as Christopher Priest, was imp impressed with how David had not previously hesitated to work with him when Owsley was an assistant editor under Larry Hama. So when Owsley became an editor, he purchased a Spider-Man story from David, which appeared in the spectacular Spider-Man number 103 with a June 1985 cover date. He then purchased The Death of Gene DeWolf, which is a story arc in Spectacular Spider-Man uh, 107 through 110 that has October 85 through January 86 cover dates. That's a landmark story. I know a particular favorite of uh, Chris Sheehan's. Oh, yes. Uh, you got me to read it, and I have to say it's pretty dang good. Oh, probably my uh, favorite Spider-Man story ever. But I think what he might be most known for is this one of the Incredible Hulk. Although he wrote Hulk? That's arguable. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it's, it's arguable. He's, he's had a lot of different landmark runs, but to me, this is what I associate him with. A 12-year, oh, uh, mostly uninterrupted run that was issues 331 to 466 plus annuals. The year's uh, cover dates were May 1987 through July 1988. 1998, sorry. And then uh, X-Factor, also well-known for that, but... Uh, much shorter run, issues 70 through 89, that was September 91 through April 1993 cover dates. That included an amazing issue where the members of X Factor visit Doc Sampson for some psychoanalysis, and we get to know all of their inner workings. All their ticks. Yeah. Uh, the book was plagued by uh, X-Family crossovers that interrupted the flow of the narrative, to which I would say to Peter David, you didn't see nothing yet. <laughs> by, the time, <laughs> by the time you left the book, that had just heated up, but that's all right. Uh, uh, Phil, uh, Peter was about to explore an abortion story in X-Factor where the mutant gene could be determined in utero. Uh, he eventually did do that story when he returned to the title over a decade later. Now, David's other Marvel comics work in the late 80s and 90s included runs on Wolverine, also the new universe series Mark Hazard, Merc, and Justice. That run on uh, original X-Factor we talked about, and the futuristic series Spider-Man 2099. Whoa. Uh, now, David... 
I, know, I think we're going to talk about that soon. <laughs> uh, now, David left X Factor after 19 issues. As we mentioned, he was constantly getting interrupted. And, yeah. uh, and he wrote the first 44 issues of Spider-Man 2099, including the very first, which we will read very shortly. Yeah. But first, let's hop across the table and meet Rick Leonardi. He was born August 9th, 1957 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, though he grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts. His first published comics artwork appeared in Thor number 303, that's January 1981 cover date, in the main story that was written by Doug Mensch. He collaborated with writer Bill Mantlo on two limited series, that's Vision and Scarlet Witch, that ran from November 1982 through February 1983 cover dates, I think that was the second Vision and Scarlet Witch uh, mini, and also Cloak and Dagger, a uh, four-issue mini October 1983 through January 1984 cover dates. Uh, Leonardo also drew various issues of Uncanny X-Men as well as the New Mutants. Along with Mike Zeck, Rick Leonardi co-created the black-and-white symbiote costume Peter Parker acquired in Secret Wars No. 8, December 1984 cover date, though the costume itself first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man No. 252, May 1984. That everything, you know, the year was missing. You know, you'd have to, every every issue of that Amazing Spider-Man would be like, if you want to know what happened, go to Secret yeah. Wars. That's not out yet. Yeah, uh, a, a comic that does not yet exist. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, it, is not, it is not having a physical form just yet. <laughs> Now, in the Spider-Man Vault, a museum, in a book with rare collectibles spun from Marvel's web. Mm, came what out a beautiful from... a title that just flows off the lips right there. <laughs> yes, and it's actually it's actually right behind me on the shelf here. Uh, it's from Running Press in 2010. Peter David would say, According to Tom DeFalco, Rick Leonardi did some additional tweaks on it, such as having the legs of the spider symbol join around in the back. Ron Friends was the first penciler to actually render it in the comics. I mean, it's a small comment, but I thought that was interesting because it's like that's a huge part of the design that really brings it together. You know what I mean? For sure, absolutely. Everyone, everyone, you know, when they when they collaborate on these things, you you don't come to think of the little additions that make the, the details. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 there it is. So, Leonardi and writer Tom DeFalco created mid-level crime boss The Rose in the Amazing Spider-Man number two fifty-three with a June nineteen eighty-four cover date. For DC Comics, Leonardi was one of the artists on the landmark Batman number four hundred with an October 1986 cover date, and he drew the Batgirl story in Secret Origins number 20, November 1987 cover date. After that brief time at DC, Leonardi returned to Marvel, where he and Chris Claremont introduced the fictional country of Genosha in Uncanny X-Men number 235, October 1988 cover date. And this would become a very important location in the X-Men Several times over, pretty much, you know. If it's like oh, that, yeah. Muir Island, those are the two real <laughs> places to be. Uh, and from 1992 to 1994, Leonardi was the regular penciler for the first 25 issues of Spider-Man 2099 with Peter David. And we're going to read that very first issue in just a moment. But first, what is this Marvel 2099 thing? Yeah. Hmm. Now, in his Stan Soapbox column in Marvel Age number 90, that's a July 1990 cover date, Stan Lee would write the following. He says, These past few months, I've received lots of mail from puzzled true believers asking me asking why I've been writing so few comic books lately. Of course, they never quite made it clear whether they're happy about that or not. But being the incurable optimist, I figured, wow, maybe some readers actually miss me. 
Uh, he goes on, as he's known to do. That's <laughs> why I recently had a powwow with one of today's most popular artist writers. No, I won't tell you until who until later. It's too good a surprise to spill now. We decided to create a whole new superhero world based on a unique concept that will give Mighty Marvel an entire array of heroes and villains such as you've never seen before. And best of all, they're an integral part of the Marvel Universe even though they're totally different. Now, if that hasn't completely confused you, then I must be slipping. Anyway, I'll tell you more about it in the months to come. So start saving your shekels, because we hope to have this first deluxe issue available for purchase before the end of the year. Or, in the wondrous words of Irving Forbush, Vincent Omnia Veritas, Excelsior, Stan. And uh, just to clarify some of that last... Bit there. Uh, Irving Forbush is one of Marvel's many mascots, a pajamas and towel cape character with a backward soup pot on his head. Uh, used to be seen on late covers of Crazy Magazine, and you know, he's, you, you see him pop up here and there in the Marvel world. And he's sometimes called Forbush Man. Sometimes, that's right. There is a Forbush yeah. Man. I forgot about that. Uh, and then Vincent Omnia Veritas translates to Truth Conquers All Things, which is. Kind of a weird sign-off for this bit, right? I don't. Is it a threat? Yeah. I, or is it, is it like <laughs> it's all a lie? I don't know. Uh, anyway, so it was in Stan's soapbox the next month, Marvel Age ninety-one, that Stan revealed the superstar writer artist as John Byrne, and mm-hmm. uh, superstar writer artist. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a phrase that will become much more you know Gets used. Bandied about a lot more it's, after this. Yeah. You know, I don't know that that this was the first time it was said, but considering how. How much more often that that exact (laughs) phrase would be said? I wonder if they like this was sort of kicked it off. Uh, The plan though was to release a graphic novel called "The Marvel World of Tomorrow," depicting a Marvel universe skewed to a different time with different dangers, different powers, and different dramas. Lee was going to script it, Byrne would draw it, the two would plot the comic together. In Marvel Comics, dated September 1990, an abbreviated version of Stan's soapbox announced the news far and wide. In it, he says, "Hi, heroes! All of you read Marvel's. All of you who read Marvel Age magazine, raise your hands." Uh oh, I see a few hands not being raised. Okay, then this column's for them. I don't want. I don't want them to miss out on the big news just because they've been careless. In a recent Marvel Age magazine column, I mentioned that I've just teamed up with one of Comicdom's most popular artist-writers to be to create a brand new Marvel mag, featuring a never-seen-before superhero world. And here's the best part. Even though it's totally different, with a strange new caboodle of unique heroes and terrifying villains, it'll still be part of the mighty Marvel Universe. I don't want to tell you too much, because we're planning it to be the comic book surprise of the year. But I can reveal one thing. The name of my partner on this dynamite project. He's not only among the most talented of today's superhero creators, but he's also one of the most controversial, charismatic, and colorful purveyors of thrill-a-minute prose and eye-popping picks. I've been wanting to team up with this famous fan favorite for a long, long time, and it's finally happening. No one in the world writes like Stan Lee, really. I mean, it's just, he's such a good... Pacing and, and, and everything. And the words. You can hear it in his voice. I almost, I almost want to try to emulate his yeah. voice a lot. I think I, I think I'd end up offending everybody, including everybody. his family. But uh, he goes on to say, "Okay, now that you're primed for action, it's time to reveal the name of my pandemonious partner." No, despite all the evidence, it isn't Irving Forbush. He blew the deal when he asked to get paid. 
Luckily, the gen, uh, my finally managed to con into collaborating with me is, hang on to your fez, oh frantic one, none other than the one and only John Byrne. Now, lest you think this is a typical leave it to Lee sales pitch, I'm not even going to tell you which title to buy. We're still keeping the name under wraps, but stay with us, Bunky. There'll be more clues next ish. Till then, Byrne and Lee doth say to thee, Excelsior. And yeah. over the next Marvel, Marvel used to be so much fun. It really, I mean, it just seems like a you know uh, a gas. You know, it's uh yeah, yeah, really a lot of fun. So over the next few editions of Sans Stopbox that appeared uh, throughout Marvel Comics and Marvel Age, he revealed a few more details. He said the series would be set in the near future. Uh, the Marvel World of Tomorrow was just a working title and might be changed. And though there would be all new heroes and villains, there would be some recognizable Marvel entities. For example, he mentioned Shield. In that column, in uh, printed in comics dated January 1991, Stan revealed a new character in the series, Ravage, and his arch, his arch foe, Deathstrike. You like that, Chris? Deathstrike? It's, it's spelled very funny. D-E-T-H-S-T-R-Y-K, the correct way if you're going to be named <laughs> Deathstrike. That's the way you want to do it. In, in the uh, future, especially. It, exactly, yeah. We have no time. <laughs> we have to really con- uh, condense our vowels. Uh, in the April 1991 edition of Stan's Soapbox, he promised to reveal the actual titles of this series in the following edition. But the next month, there was no Stan Soapbox. Uh, it wasn't said in April Fool's All Jokes edition with phony news like Archie Comics buying Marvel and DC and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles joining the X-Men, which actually would be kind of awesome. Yeah. Uh, after that, the project was not mentioned again in Stan Soapbox, and people largely forgot about it. But in the introduction to John Byrne's Next Men, book one paperback published by Dark Horse in 1993, Byrne talks about his comic 2112, which was essentially a prequel to Next Men. And that explains kind of what happened to this project. Uh, he says what actually happened was this. 2112 was created original as a pilot for Marvel's Futureverse project, initiated by Stan Lee. Stan asked me if I would like to create the future of the Marvel Universe, and my reaction was, if I don't, somebody else will. Call it ego, it's ego. But I felt if I was better qualified than most to project the future timelines of the universe with which I had been so intimately involved for so many years. I took a number of different notions which had been percolating through my head for some time and shuffled them into a package which would seem a reasonably logical extrapolation of Marvel's timeline. He continues, Unfortunately, as it turned out, things were not quite what I had been led to believe, and ultimately I found myself in a position in which I could only maintain artistic integrity. Pretentious term, but there you are. If I took back that part of the work which was exclusively mine, as distinguished with the elements which I had mixed in, or, which I'd mixed in order to make the story fit into Marvel continuity... The problem, though, was that this left me with some 64 pages of original material which, at that moment, had no home. I received a tentative offer from DC Comics, one of their editors expressing an interest in publishing the work, but I, but, but I felt what I really need was to go independent with this. I needed to find a company which would be willing to publish the work while allowing me to retain full rights to the property. As memory serves, it was my longtime friend and sometimes collaborator, Roger Stern, who suggested I try Dark Horse. Now, the uh, next man actually showed up like in a plate. 
like a production plate in DC at some point. Are, are they are they in uh, a, a who's who like in the background of a who's or like who? the history of the DC universe, something like, something like this, the, yeah. the deluxe plate or something like that? Right. That's weird. Um, now, indeed, more uh, than a few elements of this 2112 story, including eyepatch wearing Tannen, gruff head of the paramilitary squad Safeguard Incorporated, they bear some resemblance to Marvel properties. <laughs> Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. basically is what that is. <laughs> <laughs> now, never one to let an idea die, particularly not one with Stan Lee involved. Marvel kept plugging away at this idea. In Wizard Magazine edition number 9, May 1992, cover date, they ran an article titled, Marvel Gears Up for a Line of Future Comics, colon, New Line Begins This Fall. It featured four character designs for the new Spider-Man, Doom, Ravage, who was brand new in this case, and The Punisher. All of these designs are close to what we would what would finally run in the 2099 series. Uh, the Punishers is nearly spot on. The funny thing is, this article keeps calling this the Marvel 2093 line, uh, which tells us that the publisher clearly hadn't settled on the final year, and uh, we're basically just casting this thing 100 years into the immediate future. So yeah. and then there's so, that. Then somebody said, what if we start making this series after 1993? And they were like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh crap. We better, we better spin it up. <laughs> so uh, the article reads, in part, the Marvel Universe of 2093 will be dramatically different from the Marvel Universe of today. What passes for superpowers in our world is nothing extraordinary in the future, so superheroes have to be that much more powerful. The, few, the first future title is Spider-Man 2093, to be released this September. This book will be the focal point for the Marvel 2093 line. Released as part of Spidey's 30th anniversary year, Marvel's knack for marketing and promotional campaigns will make the book a hot newcomer. This new character may not have had Todd McFarlane to boost its sales, but Marvel promises to make him as interesting as the original wall crawler with a full century of changes. And you know this is uh, this is the early days of Wizard where you had to mention Todd McFarlane once in every article I think right no matter it what was the article part of the rules. yeah yeah it was part just of the like rules, yeah. Todd McFarlane used to read Whitman comics as a child that was the kind of thing. <laughs> uh, the thing concludes interestingly with except for Stanley Unravage the creative teams for each title have yet to be announced and that that isn't too insane the article was probably written February of 1993 and hit the stands around March so there's there is plenty of time between this article and the debut to come up with a full comic uh, but it just seems strange that to have something like this in the cooker for years with Stan Lee attached and no other and no one else you know yeah, I, really I, I, we really thought like somebody would say I gotta be part of that you know what I mean whatever John Romita <laughs> I gotta be on one of those books uh, sure. but that, obviously that didn't happen so whatever no, now uh, Marvel didn't officially announce the new line of comics until August 1992, a month before their debut. This was in Marvel Age number 117, October 1992 cover date. Uh, now, this comic had a six-page feature on the new world of Marvel 2099, including profiles on the new areas, new villains, and introducing the first roster of characters, which were Punisher 2099, Doom 2099, Ravage 2099, and... Spider-Man 2099, number hey. one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, the cover is a picture of Spider-Man 2099, who we're just going to be calling Spider-Man for the rest of this uh, reading here. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, clearly, it's not like there's another one to confuse him with in this story. Yeah. Uh, now, he's leaping out at the reader in a way that only comic book heroes can. You know, the kind of, like, crouch, pounce move with <laughs> all the limbs are outstretched, including the pelvis. Yeah, uh-huh. it's like he got shot from a gun or something, or a cannon. <laughs> yes. Now, behind him is a very future looking cityscape. Uh, we get a good look at the costume here, and it's mostly blue with red detail. Kind of evokes a spider. Also kind of evokes a skull, <laughs> in yeah. a way. Or actually, totally. totally. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice touch w- uh, to use the same color palette as the original costume, though. Uh, a webbing fringe trails from his arms and neck, kind of like a cape, but more immediately useless, right? Yeah, it, it, it's. It, we'll see it does supposedly have a use, but it just looks like he the fringe is left on his jacket or something yeah. like that. Uh, the border of this cover is some red techno-organic stuff. It looks pretty cool, I gotta say. Well, uh, well rendered. Gives Spider-Man a frame to jump out from, so that's a nice little uh, bit of composition. The logo is yellow. Looks like something a high school heavy metal band would come up with. I remember, I remember at the time, Crystal, when I first saw it, I thought it was terrible. The logo, yeah. for some reason, now I look at it. It's like it looks decent enough. It's not like blowing me away, but it doesn't make me as angry as it did when I was a teenager. Well, they kind of like normalized it because the actual Spider-Man logo kind of became pointy. It's true. Since, it got, uh, the, the, you're right. The late nineties. Yeah. <laughs> I, exactly what I was thinking. I was like, the Spider-Man logo itself got crazy, and this one looked downright like uh, you know <laughs> simple compared to the other Pedestrian, one. Pedestrian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now the actual story opens following five teenagers on a joyride. They're flying a hover car in between skyscrapers in some mega city. Uh, you mean uh, Mega City One? Let's not go there. Caption reads New York in the year 2099. Many things have changed. At this point, the city doesn't look a lot different from many other cities. Uh, maybe more crammed with architecture, though. Uh, as the teen's hover car flits by, we can read a headline being blared on a giant television screen that says, No leads in Alchemex Mystery Explosion. One of the teens says, we're going to get caught. Another one goes, we're not going to get caught. I'm telling you, the fly boys never come up this high. They don't like the crosswinds. Just a bunch of stoneless. What the shock is that? On the other hand, there are some things that remain depressingly the same. Double double splash opener here is pretty impressive. We got uh, Spider-Man in the foreground doing more or less the same leap he's doing on the cover. Beyond that, the perspective is pretty dizzying. Uh, the five teens in the hover car are below him. Uh, police officers, or sky boys, are uh, riding hover bikes in several directions. Uh, and the city's buildings sort of loom behind them in more standard head-on perspective. It really gives the objects in the scene a sense of weightlessness and uh, that we don't really kind of can tell which way is up yeah, as yeah. we look at it. You really get a feeling of kind of like 360-degree Space, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just confusing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, now the uh, Sky Boys are chasing Spider Man for some reason. Yeah, so one of them says, Halt! As authorized representatives of the public eye, we're ordering you to halt! You brats in the Whisper 3000, vacate this area immediately! All such vehicles are forbidden in the inner city! Your registration has been noted! Return home at once, where your vehicle would be confiscated! Move! Oh man, Cameron Fry's dad is gonna be really annoyed at this, I'm telling you. How do you drive one of those backwards? You don't wanna, you don't wanna fool with that car! Uh, one of the other officers says, Get those idiot kids out of the way! Now Spider-Man does some acrobatic twists and turns, which defies those Sky Boys. This is your final warning! Surrender instantly or we will use deadly force! What the blazes? How does he move so fast? We're here to arrest him, not admire him! 
We went, he went between those buildings. Malik with me. The rest of you, cut him off from the other side. Now we get a good look at these officers of the peace. Uh, they're wearing a combination of like several pieces of Star, Bo- Star Wars costume. Yeah, it's a, uh, a mishmash. Little, little Princess Leia from Jedi. Got a little everything in there. Okay, Malik, proceed with caution. Alchemax wants them alive if at all possible. I bet they do, Sarge. And they want me alive if at all possible. Can the jokes, Malik. Watch the drafts. They're really nasty up here. Now, where did he go? Sarge, above you! And there's Spider-Man clinging to the wall in a crouched position. An anatomically unlikely crouched position at that. It doesn't look comfortable, but all right. No. Target acquired. All units converge at my signal. There he goes. On mark and fire. One Skyboy fires a pistol that ejects what looks like uh, yellow rectangles. Yeah, these guns go two, two when they fire. <laughs> Yeah, Malik goes, those were warning shots. Don't make us hurt you. As Spider-Man turns around, he's not too worried about it. Swing around, Malik. Bring it around. Spider-Man straightens out and plummets toward the guards. What's he doing? He's in a free fall. He'll kill himself. He's not killing himself, you idiot. Once he's dropped out of range, he'll break his fall with those webbed airfoils of his. Pagusi, Estevez, come in. Are any of you on him? One flying cop comes swinging around the corner of a building. This is Estimus, Sarge. Target acquired. He's trying to change course, but I've got him in my... Spider-Man lands on Estevez and claws at his face, ripping his mask and helmet off. Don't play games with him, Estevez! Shoot! <laughs> Estevez's one-man Fantasticar is disabled and is falling rapidly to the street below. Or maybe it's a uh, hover ramp. I think it's, there's people on it, whatever it is. We don't know. Yes, and uh, Spidey goes, everyone out of the way. My face, I'm bleeding to death. You cut my face. You tried to kill me, you. The Sky Boy's bike hits the ground and explodes. Spider-Man nimbly leaps away, though, holding Estevez by his collar. Just shut up, would you please? Spider-Man leaps leaps and twists over a crowd into a large building with a big M on the front, still holding Estevez by his collar. The crowd notices this spectacle and that a Skyboy's bike just crashed nearby. Apparently, that's never happened before. The, the Skyboys from before have landed and found Estevez stashed outside the big M building. It's Estevez, all right. Get him to the nearest docks box. Where'd he go, Etsy? That way, somewhere. I don't know. We get a good look at the Sarge now. Uh, he's dressed more like an American Civil War general than he is a police officer. Like why? Why does he wear that? <laughs> Although his cap does have a decidedly, like, security guard sort yeah, of profile. It's like a too. puffy, like a milkman. It's like, what? what? <laughs> it's true. Okay, man, proceed with caution. He could be anywhere. Now, it turns out that this M building is a tremendous shopping mall. Oh, uh, they're not finding Spider-Man now. Oh, Malik is unpleased. He goes, oh, shock. So we cut over to a tall and very ominous-looking skyscraper. Yeah, it uh, towers over all the nearby buildings, too. And that's a good choice of words, because this is Babylon Towers, a subsidiary of Alchemax. Mm. A man stumbles into a darkened room within Babylon Towers. The lights turn on instantly. Ugh, lights to one quarter. The lights dim. (laughs) Better, much better. So this guy slumps into a chair. Behind him, we can see a sweeping city skyline through his windows. This is not one of the studio apartments on the fourth floor. 
No, a golden hologram of a woman appears before this man and begins to speak to him. Uh, she's wearing a cocktail dress, and she's pretty alluring. She says, Good evening, Miguel. The time is one oh one three three hours. Outdoor temperature is 54 degrees. Air is partly breathable. Forecast for the next two days is occasional cloudiness with a 50% chance of rain. 50%? That means maybe it'll rain. Maybe it won't. Yeah, but that's pretty good, Miguel. That's good about job. the size of it. That's it? what it means, yeah. <laughs> Your personal bio-readings indicate accelerated heartbeat and pulse above the norm. You've been exerting yourself. Tell me about it. I mean, are you even listening to her hologram? She just told you about it, literally. She just like, explained the whole thing. That's what she does. Uh, you have six messages pending, Miguel. Would you like to see them? Sure, Lila. So, uh, as the messages are played, Lila transforms into the actual people that called to relay those messages. Yes, uh, one is an imposing man named Tyler Stone who says some ominous stuff. Mike, I strongly suggest you come to see me so that we can work something out. You need the drug. You know it, and I know it. Tyler, there's a train leaving at 0830. Be under it. The sooner we can come to an accord, the better it will be for all of us. Tyler Stone, humanitarian. Next, Lila. The next is kind of a steampunk-looking guy with goggles on his forehead named Gabe, and he says, Miguel, it's Gabe. Yeah, I know it's you. Gabe, hollows, remember? Look, avoiding me isn't going to make things better. I stand by what I said before. The whole corporate writer program is a nasty piece of work. Nasty boys don't ever change. Burp, 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 burp. Anyway. <laughs> and you're a nasty part of it, but I still love you, man. I Dump it and move on, Lila. The next message is from Miguel's fiance, Dana. Yeah, she's got a black eye and a messed up hairdo, though that might just be the style in 2099. I'm not sure. <laughs> Miguel, are you there? Come on, pick up. No? Look, Mig. I'm really frightened for you. The other day when you were strung out on the drugs, I've never been so scared. And now it's it's like you vanished off the face of the earth, Miguel. I'm your fiancé. Don't leave me hanging after. Dump it. And the remaining messages are all from Dana, and Miguel instructs Lila to erase them all. Miguel, your present behavior is not within normal programming parameters. You've diverted from your standard pattern of domestic arrival activities. You've made no entries in your personal journal for five days. You... My journal? My journal, huh? All right, Lila, journal mode then. Take this down. Oh, goody, we're going to find out who is asking to prom. Ooh, oh, I, hope we... He, I hope we get a look at his slam book. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, we headed to flashback territory, of course, to find out how all this mess began. Uh, Miguel, last name O'Hara, as we learn now, works in some experimental genetics lab at Alchemax. This is a corporation that is as sinister as it sounds. <laughs> his office is a giant chamber of technology that might fit better on a spaceship. We meet an older colleague who's having an argument with Miguel. Look, O'Hara, you may be the project head, but I'm the one who answers to Mr. Stone, which means you answer to me. I'll try to stick to one-syllable words, then. Uh, yeah, we should warn you now. Miguel is a real quipster, okay? I he mean, doesn't mess around. He man. has got comedy jokes for every situation. <laughs> I don't care if you are one of the great hopes of Alchemax. 
I don't care if you were given the full university treatment and brought in to head the genetics program. You must have respect for the system of command. I have respect for the system, Aaron. Just none for you. Listen, smart guy. I've kept my mouth shut up to now. And don't think I haven't appreciated it. For the company's sake. Even though I can't stand smug geniuses like you. But if you don't shape up, I'm going to break you. So this is what happened to Captain Ivan Drago, huh? That's right. I must break yeah. you. <laughs> if, if he dies, he dies. Uh, Miguel goes, uh, if you break me, you bought me. Yeah, good one. There we go. <laughs> uh, I, I think they bought him already. That's kind of Aaron's point here is uh, they, they own your butt. Yeah, pretty much. So Miguel points out that despite him being a jerk, they've made tremendous scientific progress. Uh, they've had terrific success altering the genetic structure of animals. And Miguel has found some quality research inspira- quality research material for inspiration, which turns out to be a bunch of pictures of the original Spider-Man. <laughs> His name was Spider-Man, one of the premier boys from the old heroic age, around the turn of the century. Proportionate strength of a spider. What do you mean, proportionate? Uh, he means in proportion to. I mean, where'd you get your degree? Anyway, it's not like a, a difficult word. I mean, it's in the dictionary, It's right, right there. <laughs> no, that's, you don't uh, search for that one. It means you didn't get a swelled head about it. You want an ideal corporate raider? Imagine one that could scale walls, jump 50 feet, strong, agile. That's the direction we're going. We just can't go too quickly. Otherwise... Otherwise what? Otherwise we'd lose you. So we're taking it nice and slow so that you can follow along. (laughs) Enjoy the book. It has lots of pictures. All right, you little... Tyler Stone appears, and he looks like he smelled something pretty foul, right? Yeah, he's got a real scrunched-up face. Gentlemen, I couldn't help but overhear. Mr. Stone, not long enough, no see. But Aaron here is correct. Alchemax wants results. Alchemax can't want anything, Ty. It's a corporation. A legal thing. Only humans can have human desires, and humans have to be aware that reckless testing on human subjects would be... Mike, if my father were alive today, do you know what he'd say? Uh, Help, help, get me out of this coffin? He'd say caution is the first refuge of the coward, and he'd say that because... He loves the sound of his own voice. He got, he got one for every every moment. Uh, Mr. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Stone puts his arm around Miguel's shoulder and steers him towards a red-haired man in a skin-tight green outfit. There's a bullseye target in white on the chest. Because it would be true, which is why we've brought in Mr. Sims here. Mind telling me what sort of warped joke this is? No joke. Rather than face aging 40 years as his punishment, Mr. Sims has volunteered for the Raider program. Why do mad scientists experiment on convicted criminals to develop yeah. their superpowered serums? I mean, they just end up creating more supervillains every time. Yeah, none of them appreciate it. They just turn even They dead. immediately turn to crime. They, you know, yeah. they, they never <laughs> hang out, yeah. This is crazy. We're not ready for humans yet, Mr. Sims. It's far too dangerous. And then Miss Sims says, Look, Doc, I want to do this. I really, really don't want them to make a doddering old man out of me. I got a chance here to get my sentence commuted. And if I happen to grow a prehensile tail, no harm done. Just do the best job you can for me, okay? Miguel acquiesces, uh, if only to have some control over this dangerous experiment. Because if it were left to Aaron, he says, then Sim's chances would be 
Zero. Got to get a dig in there somehow. Got to mm-hmm. dig in that guy. Uh, <laughs> Miguel calls out to Mr. Sims from an observation room, and uh, Sims is strapped to one of the larger machi- machines in the chamber. Mr. Sims, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. What we're trying to do is tinker with your genetic structure. We have a variety of different imprints that we we could be using. At the moment, I'm trying something simple, something that would ideally give you augmented strength. What about that spider imprint program you were talking about? Uh, you mean that thing he conjectured about 10 minutes ago when he was holding a book of, of original Spider-Man pictures? Yeah, I don't think it's ready yet, dude. You know? and, and I don't I don't think he heard that either, right? No, oh, no, I, that's Aaron. That's Aaron, yeah. Just, <laughs> he was there. <laughs> Miguel goes, one step at a time, Aaron. I don't want to try and totally rewrite the man's genetic makeup. We could end up with a hideous, mutated freak. Or even worse, you! Miguel just does not let up for one second. I'm telling you, this no, guy. No off switch. No off switch. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, let's bring it to full power. Now, while this machinery hums to life, Miguel explains to Mr. Sims that he designed the equipment after stuff he's seen in an old hollow of the movie The Fly. Uh, not sure if he means the 1958 original or the 86 remake, but I guess those teleporters look kind of similar, like a couple of eggs or whatever, so yeah. that's fine. Uh, Aaron points out that Miguel is making jokes to cover up his own anxiety, and Miguel admits he's worried about losing a human life. Fancy that. <laughs> and uh, while this, while the, you know, whatever stuff is done, Miguel opens the lid to see how uh, Mr. Sims is doing, and uh, he's not doing great. No. Mr. Sims, you still with us? Now you'll probably feel a fairly sharp tingling. That should pass in a couple of... And a hand shoots out of the pod and strangles Miguel. Mr. Sims, he looks like he might be melting, and his eyes have turned red. Ah! Get him! <laughs> get him off me! Mr. Sims, I'm sorry, I tried! I will somewhat shock and shoot him with something! Sims! And the hideous creature slumps over, dead. Hmm. Dead. Yeah, we, we already said that. Still, he broke the restraints effortlessly. From an accelerated strength scenario, this is very positive. Very positive. Now, while Miguel is trying to catch his breath, we see Aaron over in the background with his arms folded, grinning evilly. And next, we shift up to Tyler Stone's office. It's a very well-appointed and modern, as you might expect, uh, high in the Alchemax building overlooking the city, all that. Uh, Miguel tosses his identification card on Mr. Stone's desk. And he announces, I'm gone! You need to relax, Mike. Mr. Stone pours two glasses of red wine and walks them over to Miguel. This is from my private stock. 1994 was an excellent year. Hell yeah, it was. Nirvana Unplugged came out that year, dude. (laughs) No way. (laughs) I said I'm gone. I quit. I'm not going to be part of another incident like today's. And even if you continue the work after I'm gone, at least I won't be a party to it. Alchemax has groomed you, Mike. Cared for you. Educated you. Just as we did your father. He was a brilliant man, your father. You can bill me. Mike, obviously you've made up your mind. I can appreciate that. What's more, I can respect that. Despite what the Indies would have you believe, we here at Alchemax are not heartless monsters. Our employees are cherished participants, not prisoners. You are perfectly free to leave our little family if you wish. We're a business, not a stalag. 
Now, Stellags were uh, German POW camps during World War II, usually for non-commissioned officers. Back to the story where Mr. Stone hands Miguel a glass of wine. Not only that, but I assure you that Roxanne, Stark, Fujikawa, Cynthia, anyone who contacts us about you will receive nothing but the highest recommendation. Here's to a bright future. Speaking of bright, uh, Miguel takes a sip of the wine. And that's a bad move. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm hoping you will reconsider. Ty, did we just have a synaptic meltdown in the last few minutes? I'm leaving, remember? Vapor, poof! And you know, now that I've made the decision, I feel more relaxed than ever. Yes, that would probably be because of my parting gift. The rapture. The rapture in the wine you just drank. I'm sure you're familiar with it. A very high-powered, mind-expanding hallucinogen. Perfectly legal, of course. A number of Alchemax employees are already users. By my records, but my records indicate you'd never availed yourself of it. I thought maybe the prohibitive expense had made you hesitate, so consider this a present. The glass of wine, on the other hand, will be six bucks. <laughs> It'll be coming out of your last year. Right. You creeping piece of... Now that I think of it, perhaps you've passed on it because Rapture is so addictive. Once it's in your system, you need it the way you need oxygen to breathe. Without Rapture, you'll die. Uh, that That's not addiction anymore. That's uh, medication at that point. Yeah, I mean, would you call someone with diabetes addicted to insulin? You know, I mean... They... <laughs> If you need it, it's not really... Anyway, you want to hit me, don't you? I wouldn't. I think you'll want me to remain kindly disposed towards you, especially since Alchemax is the only authorized Rapture distributor. There's probably another reason it held no appeal for you, you being such an independent sort, Mike. You'd never want to give up your ability to walk away. You can still walk away, Mike, but you won't like the consequences. Yeah, apparently the consequence is death. I, that's like not really an option. I feel like there's got to be something better for employee retention, right? I, I mean, maybe maybe offer him a few extra vacation days. A Some, year, maybe, know, right? Didn't even give the guy a counter offer. Just went right to the drill. Oh, oh, his own stapler. I don't know. <laughs> uh, now, Miguel stumbles out of the office feeling very out of sorts. Tyler Stone has a car bring him home and hopes he'll remain a part of the Alchemax crew when he sobers up. Back at his apartment, his fiance Dana is going is going uh, doing some of her aerobics with uh, our little uh, robot hologram Lila. Right. And and it's funny because Lila is in workout clothes, but uh, Dana is in workout clothes, but Lila is uh, still in a golden cocktail dress. Yeah, they're doing like yoga, and she's still in her uh, her evening his dress. Normal gear, yeah. Uh, Lila says one, two, three, four. Come on, Dana, do some more. Don't slow down. Don't take rests. This will help to firm your... Oh. Just then, Miguel shows up. Wait, wait, what will that exercise help firm, though? Her jowls? We didn't find out. (laughs) Uh, Dana says, Freeze program. Miguel, what's wrong, lover? You're home early. Yeah, she wouldn't wear this outfit with other people around. (laughs) Are you sick? Should I? Miguel lashes out, elbowing Dana in the face as he scrambles away. Get away! Oh, shock, Dana. I I didn't realize it was. I thought you were a... Honey, I swear, I... Dana turns to Miguel, already developing quite a shiner. Oh, man, your face. I I feel like dirt. Good. It's the rapture. I was fighting it, seeing monsters everywhere. I... Rapture? Since when do you do rapture? 
And uh, can you get me any? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and since Tyler Stone decided to slip some, slip me some as an incentive for me to stay, you were quitting Alchemax. Uh, yeah, it's been a heck of a day there. You missed a little bit there, Dana. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, but now, I mean, the effects have finally passed, but I can feel it gnawing at me. I, I'll need it again soon, but then Alchemax has my butt in a permanent sling. Listen, I have friends. Even if you quit Alchemax, I could probably get raptured through the black market. Uh... Just what kind of friends are you running with here? What's going on? We need a we need a background check. <laughs> Seriously, you want me to be a lousy drug addict my whole life? And if you get the drugs through Alchemax, they'll be covered by his health insurance. So that makes that's better. But I mean, either he he takes it or he dies. So he's gonna be on the drug until he dies. Any either way. Exactly. There's no way out of this one. Yeah, <laughs> it's a done deal. Uh, now D- Dana has a tearful hug with Miguel. I want you not to hurt. That's all. That's all. Miguel O'Hara has other ideas, uh, like breaking into Alchemex's genetic laboratory and rewriting his own genetic code. Uh, to get rid of that addiction to rapture, you see. Do, do, you, do you think he'll use the, uh, the spiders? Sure, or, not yet. Or, or, We're not getting there yet. Yeah. <laughs> Miguel thinks to himself, the rapture's already bonded itself to me genetically. By morning, I'll be a hopeless addict. My only prayer is to try to restore myself to what I was. I've already been using my own genetic code as sample working material, except I've been imprinting it on apes. And that's how I made Mozo, the trash-talking ape. Oh, that guy's got no walk switch either. <laughs> and he continues to think, Never occurred to me that I'd want to try implementing it on myself. If this works, my genetic encoding will be what it was before Stone's little killer cocktail. Plus, last night's television shows will seem brand new to him, so that'll be nice. Yeah, yeah, if, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. <laughs> it's new to you. Uh, <laughs> if it doesn't, then I hope for Tyler's sake that I'm the most obnoxious ghost he's ever there ever was. Uh, more obnoxious than Slimer? <laughs> Good luck with that, Miguel, seriously. Yeah. You're just becoming a go- the first-time ghost? Yeah, you're going to be the most. Mm. Uh, back in the control room, however, Aaron is watching all this unfold. And this looks like a fine opportunity to commit a little murder. Well, in the name of science. Miguel O'Hara, working overtime. And without clearing it with his supervisor, even. How's he going to get paid? Yeah. A pity if something went wrong. Something like, say, my pumping up the levels of every blasted piece of equipment in the imprint sequence. What's this button do? Poor, dumb old Aaron Delgado wouldn't understand your great concepts, would I, O'Hara? Doesn't much matter when I'm in the driver's seat, does it? Aaron turns all the levels up to 11. Well, it is one louder after all. It is, it is. Behind him, two screens read File 1A, O'Hara 50, and File 47A, Spider 50. And now things are getting smoky in the control room. Yes, an alarm starts to sound. Warning! Equipment is exceeding recommended safety levels. Automatic shutdown in T-minus five seconds. Override. Repeat. Manual override. A screen reads, warning, exceeding recommended safety limits, and then it changes to override and effect, files merging. Oh, God, this takes forever when my computer does it. Oh, it's the worst. (laughs) Then, a massive explosion, and it looks like Miguel O'Hara bit the big one. Ah, how'd you like that, Mr. Genius? Mr. Smartmouth Wisecracker? How'd it... Huh? Aaron walks into the wreckage that was the genetic testing chamber to see that Miguel is still standing. He's hunched over and looks to be in tremendous pain, but but he is standing. Yeah, Aaron thinks to himself, 
I don't believe it. Still alive and unharmed. But he doesn't know I overloaded the circuitry. I can use that. And he says aloud, Late night mad scientist theatrics, O'Hara? You've just blown it big time, boy. When I tell Mr. Stone how you wrecked the equipment in some temperamental tantrum, that's going to finish you. Aaron approaches Miguel, who is still turned away and hunched over. Then I'll be back in charge, doing things the way they should be. Turn around when I speak to you, boy, before I kick your butt from here to... to... Aaron turns Miguel around and is shocked at what he sees. He looks like a white-eyed vampire with talons sticking out from his fingertips. Oh, and it's actually a full page of his face. It's it's very, like, I don't know if the scary is the word, but imposing. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> Off-putting. It's a, shock, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a shock to the reader as well to see this like, face right, right uh, blasted in your sure. face. And the final caption reads, next, nothing ventured. Although, of course, they do venture something because there is a second issue and, you know, up to 44 issues of it. So, yes. yes. Uh, a lot of it would be described as an adventure. So. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. But <laughs> that's all right. You know, that's just what, how they wanted to uh, keep you cliff hanging along. So uh, that takes our first foray into the year of 2099, uh, the Marvel 2099, at least. Uh, we don't know about mm. the other universes. <laughs> so we're going to take a little break, try to reset, come back to the present, and when we return, we will tell you all about the more about this line and the people involved. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? Welcome back, future friends. And uh, let's look a little bit more at the future of Marvel 2099. We have the initial four books. That was, of course, Spider-Man, Ravage, Doom, and the Punisher of a 2099 roster. They did pretty well, and the fans requested more titles to be added. So we have 2099 Unlimited. That debuted with a July 1993 cover date by Evan Skolnick and Chuck Wozniak. In this book, they debuted the character Hulk 2099, who was created by Gerard Jones and Dwayne Turner, and he would go on to have his own short-lived series a bit later on. X-Men 2099, because you know there had to be an X-Men Oh, of course. I probably didn't start with that, frankly. <laughs> right? That's a shock. Uh, no pun intended, because shock, I guess, is sort of a... Oh, uh, I don't say that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, the X-Men 2099 would debut with an October 1993 cover date, and that was created by John Francis Moore and Ron Lim. In 1993, Wizard reported that the 2099 line had gone over fairly well with the fans. 
In 2099's imprint editor, uh, Joey Cavalieri, he kept a tight continuity over the all titles in the series, which was reminiscent of the earlier days of Marvel under Stan and Jack. Uh, though the only crossover between all the titles was The Hammer Falls in 1994, which ran through all the 2099 titles and involved the coming of Asgard to this future world. So, Ghost Rider 2099 debuted with a May 1994 cover date written by Len Kaminsky, drawn by Chris Bacciolo. This was the Ghost Rider if he were a Terminator, essentially. Uh, very shiny. Yeah, very yeah, okay. Robot Ghost Rider that can, <laughs> cannot be destroyed. Stan Lee left writing duties on Ravage 2099 after eight issues, and his fairly well controlled story started spitting out after several writers jumped on to fill in. Oh, got wild. Yeah. Sales, yeah. It, I don't think they knew what the. What the character like was beast. supposed to be? Yeah, it was yeah. very strange. Yeah. Uh, sales began flagging on the line, aside from Spider-Man and X-Men 2099, and Marvel accepted pitches from Grant Morrison and Mark Miller to juice the imprint. They eventually accepted a proposal from Warren Ellis, who had already been writing for 2099 Unlimited. Uh, his idea was Doom 2099 would be proven to be the actual Victor Von Doom and would assume control of the United States. Titles in the line began appearing with AD after the logo, denoting it as after Doom, and the moment was taken to cancel Hulk, Ravage, and the Punisher 2099, which were the lowest sellers. Miguel O'Hara would meet Peter Parker in the aptly titled Spider-Man 2099 Meets Spider-Man at one shot, November 1995, (laughs) cover date by Peter David and Rick Leonardi. And then in 1996, Marvel fired Joey Cavalieri as part of a restructuring Several creators, including 2099 regulars Warren Ellis and Peter David, quit the line in protest. Have you ever looked at the uh, the Miller and uh, Morrison uh, no. pr- pitch? It's it's interesting stuff. Uh, I remember part. I don't remember all of it, but I remember parts of it were that uh, giant man had uh, grown in size, of course, and was kind of like standing in in the some part of the ocean or something. He was just still standing there, and I guess his aging had slowed down, so it was actually still Hank Pym. Uh-huh. And like his heartbeat was like setting off like some weird stuff. It, it, it's it's a wild sounding story. I don't. I, it's been years since I've looked mm. at it though. It, it seemed like a, maybe a missed opportunity. Maybe not. It's, it, it also seems like it might be out there, especially for mid. 90s Marvel, but uh, it's true. Maybe, it's know. true. Now, with the line floundering, two additional titles were launched, <laughs> which is always a smart move. Sure. Uh, we have Fantastic Four 2099 that launched with a January 1996 cover date by Carl Kiesel and Rick Leonardi, and this was the present day Fantastic Four sent into the future. For fun, why not? Sure. Uh, we have uh, X Men 2099 turned into X Nation 2099, and that launched with a March 1996 cover date by Tom Payer and Humberto Ramos. Uh, this is a spin off of X Men 2099. Uh, around this time, Doom 2099 became the only 2099 comic to cross over with present day Marvel uh, when, uh, in issue 42, he traveled de- back to 1996 and he met Daredevil and the Fantastic Four and Namor. This story was concluded in Fantastic Four number 413. Uh, Both issues were uh, cover dated June 1996 by Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan. Eventually, overall sales for 2099 titles tanked, so the line was canceled and replaced by one title, 2099 The World of Tomorrow. Now, that debuted with a cover date of September 1996, written by Joe Kelly with art by Pasquale Ferry. Now, this condensed the whole concept into a single series featuring all the remaining 2099 characters, and this series lasted a whopping eight eight issues. issues. 
Now, the 2099 line was concluded with a one-shot called 2099 colon Manifest Destiny. This was March 1998, cover date by Len Kaminsky and Mike McCone. In the year 2099, Captain America is found in suspended animation and, with Miguel O'Hara, assembles various 2099 heroes into a new team of Avengers. The story actually concludes in the year 3099, when generations of heroes have turned the world into an idyllic utopia. I do like the idea of a 2099 Avengers, though. I think that was uh, that has some legs, that's possibly. A miss, that's one they missed, yeah. yeah. I've never seen that come back. It's like, oh, that's too bad. Hmm. Uh, Peter David revisited revisited the 2099 universe in Captain Marvel Volume 4, numbers 27 through 30. That's March through May 2002, cover dates, drawn by Criss Cross, in a story arc titled Time Flies. In that same arc, he also revisited the alternate future created for the character Maestro, during his Incredible Hulk Future Imperfect storyline. And these, uh, we got to mention that this was like a novelty then. Yeah. You know, where they'd visit these things over again. They weren't oh, like right. just launching titles with these characters over and over again. Yeah, like, it, it was a special little aside. This, this also reminds me of like the uh, uh, early Kyle Rayner books where he would like meet Hal Jordan. Yeah, but that yeah. was just a—it was just a story. It wasn't like a you know new tech for everything. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure isn't Maestro's probably on the Avengers right now or a team of Avengers? Oh, I don't know. He might be the head of the X Men. I have no idea <laughs> what's going be. on. <laughs> now, in uh, 2004, writer Robert Kirkman wrote a series of one-shot comics for the fifth anniversary of the Marvel Knights imprint, under the heading Marvel Knights 2099. Now, these stories were unconnected to the original 2099 universe for some reason, and in fact featured different versions of the characters for some reason. Sure. Why not? Uh, In 2005, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe designated the Earth of 2099 as Earth 928, with Marvel Knights 2099 designated as Earth 2992. And Chris, you can combine that information with $5 and get yourself a cup of coffee. Or a box of rat poison. That's to watch. Sure. Now, in uh, 2006, the Exiles, they visited Marvel Universe 2099 in Exiles issues 75 through 76. It was March and April of 2006. Now, this was part of the World Tour arc. They were traveling all over to various realities and Earths of uh, the Marvel uh, multiverse. This was written by Tony Bedard and penciled by Jim Caliafiore. Calafiore. Calafiore, yes. <laughs> now, this is a different 2099, however, as Doom 2099 has not yet met Spider-Man 2099. This version of Spider-Man 2099 joins the Exiles, and he actually goes off with them. So, in 2009, Marvel published time, miniseries Time Storm 2009 to 2099 that had six issues, including Spider-Man and X-Men one-shots. They ran from June through October cover dates of that year. Uh, this crossed the current Marvel Universe with yet another alternate reality version of 2099, and that Spider-Man 2099 was a teenager. Why? <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> okay, Spider-Man 2099, that's a Miguel O'Hare. The original one. Now he was trapped in the mainstream Marvel Comics universe in the Superior Spider-Man number 17 that had a November 2013 uh, cover date by Dan Slott and Ryan Stegman. He hung around through the series, even working at Peter Parker's corporation for a while. But really, uh, his 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 moment during 2014's Spider-Verse event, which brought together. Oh, God, thousands of different Spider-Man? Different uh, it was, like, unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> Ugh, we're still trying to shake them off. Um, now, incidentally, the two errant Spider-Man 2099s from Time Storm and Exiles are killed off in this event, uh, but who knows? We wouldn't count them out for the count. You no, know. There's always, not. always not. someone going to drag them into the light. 
the 2099 universe figures into Marvel's 2015 crossover event, Secret Wars, because everything somehow figures into that event somehow. Uh-huh. And then uh, in Deadpool Volume 4, Number 6, March 2016, cover date by Jerry Dugan and Scott Koblish, Deadpool 2099 is introduced, and she's Warda Wade, the daughter of Deadpool and Shakaya, because... Why not? Huh? How about that? Kill me. What do you say? Ugh. So let's finish up on uh, the writer, Peter David. Now, as stated, Peter David wrote 44 issues of Spider-Man 2099 before quitting to protest the firing of editor Je- Joey Cavalieri. Spider-Man 2099 was canceled two issues later. That's issue 46, August 1996, cover date. And the 2099 line, line as we said, was folded into 2099 World of Tomorrow series. Now, in 1993, David had a much publicized and uh, somewhat embarrassing public debate with former collaborator Todd McFarlane. It was held October 8th at the first annual Comic Fest 1993 and was moderated by another of David's collaborators, George Perez. It was made clear right off the bat that both debaters had different ideas what was about to go down. We had Todd entered dressed like a boxer, and I'm pretty sure with music, and also flanked by cheerleaders and and also a guy in a bad rock costume. <laughs> Even though that was like a Liefeld thing. Yeah, uh, why not? Hey, you got the costume. Why not, why not you, use it? Yeah. Maybe it was Liefeld because I, I know I know Liefeld was sneaking around uh, the '93 San Diego con in a bad rock. Mask. Oh, that might maybe be. it was actually him. Uh, Peter was dressed like a normal civilian. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Now, the debate uh, might make for a decent segment on a future episode of Weird Comics History uh, when we discuss the launch and rise of Image Comics, so we'll put a pin in that yeah. because it's it's silly and, uh, as we mentioned, a little embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, in 1996, he, uh, Peter David created the Nickelodeon TV show Space Cases with uh, the fellow who would like to send them to the cornfield, uh, Bill Mummy. That's right. And, uh, this set him up for a while. I also know him as, the, isn't he the Lost in Space kid then, Bill he Mummy? He is, Will Robinson, that's, yes. Uh, that's, my, that's my memory of him. So, uh, as we said, uh, Peter David had a lot of memorable runs. Uh, one of them was on Aquaman. This is issues 0 through 46, plus annuals. That's ran from August 1994 to July 1998 cover date. This is the long-haired, bearded, bearded, one-handed take on the character that actually is very well remembered now, and probably the best dive into Aquaman before Jeff Johns is my. That's yeah, me opinionating, so, yeah. but that's what I would say. I I agree definitely. Um, Supergirl, this is another good run. Issues one through eighty, plus um a one million issue for that uh, one million tie-in. September 1996 to May 2003 cover dates. This is the Linda Danvers Fallen Angel take that sort of like uh, crosses over from the uh, protoplasm one, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Kind of explains that, and it's it's weird the way the transition happens, but it works. You have it's to. Like, you have, it's an evolution from the Matrix. Yeah. You really almost have you have to see it to believe it because it's very straight. Those first six issues are like, all right, sure. Uh, <laughs> Young Justice, he wrote issues 1 through 55 and a 1 million issue. That was September 1988 through May 2003. Cover dates. Uh, sounds like it just wasn't his month, May 2003. All his books were <laughs> right. dying. That right there. Uh, junior High is to Young Justice as High School is to Teen Titans. Is a good way to look at that, basically. Uh, David's early 2000s work includes runs on two volumes of Captain Marvel, which debuted in 2000 and 2002, as well as the Before the Fantastic Four Reed Richards limited series. And also, You Decide, Hmm. which is a whole other thing that if you want our long-form discussion on the Gemis era Marvel comics stunt called You Decide, check out Weird Comics History Episode 10 in the archives, because... 
It's a whopper of a story, folks. It sure is. In 2003, David began writing another creator-owned series, uh, this is Fallen Angel from DC Comics, which he created in order to make use of some plans he had devised for Supergirl after the Many Happy Returns storyline that concluded that series. Uh, that same year, he wrote a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series for Dreamwave, which tied into the animated television series coming out that same year. Uh, DC would cancel Fallen Angel after 20 issues, but David retained the rights and restarted the title over at IDW Publishing at the end of 2005. Other IDW work included a Spike colon Old Times one-shot and the Spike vs. Dracula miniseries. We're going to guess both of those are based on the character from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Yep, seems like okay. it, yep. Now, uh, X-Factor, he did have that run on X-Factor Volume 2. It was eventually renumbered to fit in with the legacy numbering of that. (laughs) But that would get canceled and make way for all new X-Factor. Now, this is a new series with artist Carmine Domenico. Domenico, yes, Gian yes, Domenico, <laughs> <laughs> as part of the all-new Marvel Now initiative, which is like the third or fourth time they used Marvel I, Now. Yes, I don't know which one that was. <laughs> it was one of them, yes. Uh, now, the opening storyline, which continues events from issue 260 of the original series, which it establishes the new corporate-sponsored version of the team, which includes Polaris, Quicksilver, and Gambit. Uh, On December 29th, 2012, David would suffer a stroke while on vacation in Florida. Uh, Six months after the stroke, David had uh, completed his physical therapy. He revealed in January 2015 that he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes a year prior. In July 2014, David returned to Spider-Man 2099, writing the second volume with artist Will Sliney. With this series, David would again be writing two series, X-Factor and Spider-Man 2099, after having previously done so uh, decades prior, the same two series. Mm -hmm. In 2015, Simon & Schuster published Stanley's autobiographical graphic novel, Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, which David co-wrote. In March 2017, David revealed on his blog that the IRS was demanding 88000 Dollars in unpaid taxes. He started a GoFundMe campaign to raise the money from friends and fans, which raised $68,000 by April 12th. In April 2017, Marvel premiered the monthly series Ben Riley, colon, The Scarlet Spider with David as writer, and Peter David is married and has four children. Now to wrap up on the art for this, uh, Leonardi, Rick Leonardi, later launched the Fantastic Four 2099 series with Carl Kiesel. We talked about that, eight issues, January through August 1996 cover dates. He also drew the 2000 intercompany crossover between DC Comics and Dark Horse, Green Lantern vs. Aliens, that had four issues, September through December 2000, written by Ron Mars. Leonardi drew one of the tie-in one-shots for the Century Limited series, Century Spider-Man number one, February 2001, written by Paul Jenkins, and we mentioned this in Weird Comics History number 18, which is in the archives. Mm-hmm. Leonardi was a regular penciler on uh, Nightwing for issues 71 through 84. Those were cover dated December 2002 through October 2003, written by Devin Grayson. He also drew issues 45 through 52 of Batgirl, December 2003 through July 2004. That's the uh, the Cassandra Kane Batgirl, uh, written by Dylan Horrocks. Uh, for the next few years, Leonardi drew fill-in issues on many of the main series for DC Comics, as well as issue number three of the tie-in to the film Superman Returns, titled Superman Returns Prequel in 2006. Fair enough. 
And it was just announced that Leonardi and inker Wade Von Grobedja are the illustrators on a Batman Beyond arc, which will begin with issue number 31 this April, written by Dan Jurgens. And uh, believe it or not, we didn't even plan it this way. Yeah, we didn't even know that was going to happen, but hey, look yeah. at that. we got a little tie-in for once. We actually have an episode that has some tie to current events. So we're, that's we're brushing up against revel- <laughs> re- relevance here. Yeah, really? Scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now to wrap up the episode, we want to uh, look at some other comic book stories and series that took place in the future. At least the important parts of those stories took place in the future. As you know, comics can do a little back and forth with the time, so uh, we did the best we could. Uh, it, it doesn't include stories of time travel in the past, or stories where folks from alternate universes go into the past to affect the present. <laughs> Only people in the future doing stuff mostly in the future for this list. That was the... Yeah, we, ha- we have to have boundaries, because if you don't... That's the edict, yes. They, they, these lists spit out fast. Uh, and we did stick with the big two here. Maybe another day we can tackle other stories from around the world, because there are many, many uh, stories like this. So, first up is the Legion of Superheroes. These, uh, this team first appeared in Adventure Comics number 247, April 1958, covered eight by Otto Binder and Al Plastino. This is a group of initially teens with superpowers from the 30th and later the 31st century, and they were inspired by the deeds of Superboy to be heroes. These heroes are known for having one power apiece, which names them, i.e. Shadow Lass and Bouncing Boy, and they also have diminutive names like Lass and Kid, just to make them <laughs> seem like little jerks, uh, at least until they get a little older under Paul Levitz. Yes, we also have the Atomic Knights. Uh, the Atomic Knights first appeared in Strange Adventures number 117, that had a cover date of June 1960, created by John Broom and Murphy Anderson, and it ran in every third issue of Strange Adventures until issue 160, January 1964. Now, this was a band of heroes protecting the post-apocalyptic future of... 1992. That's the same year Thundar happened, I believe, too. Uh-oh. Sorry, guys. Uh, now, uh, later, Gardner Grail dons some super armor and calls himself the Atomic Knight, but that doesn't happen in the future. Well, it happens in the future of the Atomic Knights, but not our future. Yeah, it gets complicated when you try to deal with these things. He, he joins the Outsiders briefly. Yeah. That's right. He is on the Outsiders. Uh, Superman number 300 is the one we're choosing for a Superman future story because there are quite a few issues with Superman <laughs> and action comics that have some kind of future stories. We're just gonna we're gonna pick this one, but we they, this could be a list of its own. Uh, the cover date for this is June 1976. The story is Superman 2001, written by Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magan, drawn by Kurt Swan. Uh, this is an imaginary story where Kal El's rocket from the Doom planet Krypton landed on Earth in 1976. More importantly, he's picked up not by Mon Pa Kent, but by the U.S. government. They dub him Skyboy, and he fights for America until he gets sick of it and fakes his own death. Uh, then in the year 2001, the world needs him again, so he throws on the Skyboy duds one more time to defeat evil before reverting back to his civilian life as Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. Days of Future Past, Uncanny X-Men issues 141 through 142. Uh, that's actually the second issue there is the first official issue of Uncanny X-Men. That's when oh. they changed it in Indonesia. 
Uh, this is January, February 1981 cover dates by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Because a mutant assassinated Senator Robert Kelly in 1981, the future world of 2013 is a fascist nightmare run by sentinels that have rounded up the world's mutant population into camps and are controlling the rest of humanity with cold cruelty. The Kitty Pride of the Future sends her mind back in time to her, to her younger self to warn about this future, and so she'll stop the assassination. So the important action takes place in the future, even if it results in that future becoming irrelevant. Ah, says you, Chris, in 1990, they brought it back with Days of Future Present. Chitter, chitter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we got Akira. This is the manga. was by Katsuhiro Otomo, published initially in Japan in the weekly Young Magazine from December 6, 1982 through to June 11, 1990. But it was published in, in the United States by Marvel Comics, under their Epic Comics imprint, making it one of the first manga works to be translated in its entirety into English. That was 38 issues, August 1988 to February 1996 cover date. So that's why it makes this list. Hey, hey. In a post-apocalyptic and futuristic Neo-Tokyo, biker gangs and scientists team up to stop the unleashing of Akira, a person given psychokinetic abilities and gross cancer after some government experiments. Uh, an animated film based on the series was released in 1988, but the plot is very truncated, uh, partly because the manga was not yet concluded when the when it was made. So mm-hmm. it kind of it ends one way, then the manga ends a totally different way. Yeah, and, and the kid Akira only appears like for like a few like a minute. It's in true. The movie. It's very yeah. end. Yeah. Now, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, a twelve issue maxi series by Marv Wolfman and George Perez, it ran from April 1985 through March 1986. Cover dates. Now, this might not be considered a quote, future story, but the climax of the action, well, the last of uh, three climaxes, (laughs) takes place at the end of time, during the endothermic death of the universe. And from there spawns a new universe, created by Alex Luther and the Spectre. Uh, The Anti-Monitor gets involved there, too, but the point is, it does happen in the distant future, so we're going to... We're going to keep it in. That's right. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> sure. Uh, Team Titans, they first appeared in New Titans number 79, September 1991, cover date, during the Titans Hunt storyline. This is a group of Titans believed to be from the near-distant future. They're eventually revealed as being from an alternate near-distant future. <laughs> Initial team members included Mirage, Red Wing, Knight Rider, Kilowatt, Prester, John, and Terra, but not that Terra. Well... Not exactly that terror, but still yeah. a mean terror. That's, you know. <laughs> uh, what the, this team of Titans lived in a future ruled by the evil Lord Chaos, who we learn is actually the instantly aged son of Donna Troy and Terry Long. The teamers traveled back to the present, setting off the Total Chaos crossover, during which they would attempt to kill Donna Troy before she could give birth to Lord Chaos. They fail, but Donna winds up sacrificing her powers to send Lord Chaos to live among the gods or... Something. He goes away. He goes away. Uh, it's all a moot point anyway when the teams just realize they're not even in their timeline anymore. And eventually that's all rendered moot too when it's revealed that the mastermind behind the Team Titans was actually Hank Hall, former Hawk, then extant. Uh, the teamers, barring Mirage and Terra, are negated by the time trapper during Zero Hour. Yes, they never, ever happened. That's fine with me. Sure. Another one we got here, DC One Million, a four-issue miniseries by Grant Morrison and Val Simex. Uh, This is November 1998 cover dates, plus uh, 34 tie-ins with books published at that very same cover month by DC Comics. 
We're in the 853rd century, where descendants of the original DC superheroes and villains are still contending with the immortal Vandal Savage. Every book in the line got a one-millionth issue, either tying into this miniseries or depicting that character's state in the far-flung future. A year later, there was a one-million issue of the 80-page Giant, showing how everyone was faring after the event. Yeah, that issue apparently is like the rarest of all, if anyone is... uh... In this to collect, I don't know why that's that's such a, a difficult one to snatch up, but I've seen, I've seen it go for quite a bit of dough. Uh, I've I've got it, but I've never read it, so maybe I uh, ought to. I, I have it also. I I think I, yeah. I read it, I read it years ago, but I haven't looked at it in a long, long time. Hmm. Uh, Batman Beyond. This began as an animated series that had three seasons, January tenth, nineteen ninety nine, to December eighteenth, two thousand one, were the air dates. By uh, Bruce Tim, Paul Dini, and Alan Burnett. But the comics, which are what this podcast is about, began as a six issue limited series, November 1999 to October 2001, cover dates, written by Hilary J. Bader, drawn by Rick Burchett and Joe Staten. The series is now in its seventh volume. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the story is that in the year 2039, Bruce Wayne's protege, Terry McGinnis, fights futuristic criminals in Neo Gotham. Aided by a tech-filled supersuit and old man Wayne yammering in his ear the whole time. <laughs> Terry's world also contains a future version of the Justice League consisting of an older Kal-El, Big Barda of Apocalypse, and new characters Aquagirl, Aquagirl Micron, Warhawk, and a new Green Lantern named Cairo. Uh, an elderly Static Shock is also on the team for one episode of the cartoon, so that's nice. Hmm. We have the new 52 colon Future's End. This was a weekly series of 49 total issues, including a zero, that ran from May 2014 through April 2015 cover dates, written by Brian Azzarello, Jeff Lemire, Dan Jurgens, and Keith Giffen, withdrawn, and it's drawn by many, many, many people. Many names got involved. <laughs> We jump back with uh, Batman Beyond here, Terry McGinnis, from 35 years in the future, travels back in time to... Five years in the future. Uh, uh, This is the uh, New 52 future, by the way. Right, right. And he does so to stop events that will make his timeline pretty crummy. You see, uh, through uh, once once someone uh, travels back in time to fix things, he still winds up in our future, so it counts for the list, right? Exactly. He goes from from one future point to another future point, so it's all in the future. It's all in the future, and the whole story is pretty messy in it. it, it winds up being basically a run-up for a, another volume of Batman Beyond, which stars Tim Drake as Batman Beyond for yeah, some reason. That one never really worked, i got to say. Uh, uh-uh. But some of the other Batman Beyond comics I've read, they've been okay. Usually it's sort of a, uh, you know, not a big commitment to read, I feel like. You know, it's a, it's a mm. good, fun uh, the issues actually, I don't know. I don't know about volume seven, but my memory of the earlier volumes is that most of the stories are self-contained and after one or two issues. So that's a nice thing to see. Uh, sure. But yeah, this has been our time hanging out in the distant future of we comic books for a little while. And uh, oh, that's Hex. right, I did forget about Hex. <laughs> oh my goodness, there are there are others that there could are have more. been added. I'm well, sure we'll get there, folks. I'll tell you, this is a great opportunity for you to write into us. And uh, tell us how poorly we did picking these uh, <laughs> future stories. Or if you want to talk about uh, the Marvel 2099 universe or anything we mentioned 
in this episode, you can, of course, write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon if you like what we're doing and you want to get some exclusive content. We got one episode of Cosmic Treadmill after dark per month, plus two episodes of Chris and I just sort of talking off the cuff about comics that we call Comics Talk. Head on over to patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie and uh, throw us five bucks. What do you say? Yeah. Now you can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. You can follow us on Instagram at cosmic Same on Twitter. We're at cosmic and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can check out weekly writings on newer DC Comics over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. We're also part of their show, and uh, you're doing your uh, retro review. My every there. other yeah. retro, every other week, I do a uh, a uh, Lois Lane retro review. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll go over to Chris's personal site, Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week from any point in DC's history. It's been a Green Lantern thing going on lately, right? A, <laughs> a couple bit. days, yeah. Green, uh, John's Green Lantern, but it really, it can be anything. And uh, he's got a synopsis, pictures, and ads from the comic. Uh, it's the next best thing to reading the comic. Go check it out. Thank you. You can also check out the show site at we no wait Uh-oh. at chrisandreggie.com. Whoa! We're official. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you can go over there and you can get all of our show notes, all of our episodes, all of our images, a chronological listing of all of our programming. Uh, we're actually going to be opening up a new page of archive here since we're on episode 126. Uh, the archives are in 25 chunks. So. Uh, this is a big one here. This, this, is, a is, this is a milestone. Here we go. We're <laughs> heading into another section of archives. Uh, yes. And while you're over there at chrisandreggie.com, if you're feeling a little chilly up top and you want to get perhaps uh, some clothing, head on over, click the banner to 80stees.com. If you like what they got over there, you want to buy some T-shirts. If you do so, you help us, you help yourself, and you help them too, which is nice. So mm-hmm. give it a shot if you are so inclined. But I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill and shock yourself. See ya. In the city, future city, lived a man in a little red house. He said, hello, how do you do? I said, okay, well then, can you tell me your name? Tell me what is this? He said, What's my name? Oh, your name got to do with this. Here we are.